and in preparation for where we will be this morning, you can turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 7. And we have reached that place. We're about to dive into this amazing passage. Amazing. <clears throat> but first, a story. She cried as she walked through the town by herself. Six years old, cold, hungry, lonely, and helpless, she was trying to find a scrap, a morsel, a crumb that might at least fill a piece of the void in her grumbling stomach. It had been days since she had eaten, weeks since she'd interacted with a human who had called her by her name and looked her in the eye. In despair, she sat down on the busy sidewalk and cried out in a cacophony of total despair. In her six years of living, this was what was considered normal. It was all she knew. But she knew that, that it was all that she didn't want as well. She was ready to give up, ready to give in to the hopelessness. So she cried out with moans and groans that echoed in, from, and through her heart. From the other room, her adoptive father heard her cries and ran into her room, picked her up and held her, rocked her, and reassured her. It was only a dream. You're home now. You're with us now. We love you. We adopted you. We're your mommy and daddy now. It was only a dream. It's okay. You're okay now. The little girl saw the face of her adoptive dad. She saw him, touched him, heard him, but still felt like she was alone in China, homeless and hopeless. Here in her new home in America, her old reality and her new reality were clashing and crashing together, and both felt as real as the princess pajamas that she wore. Stephen Curtis Chapman told this story about the first girl he adopted from China, whom they named Shauhanna. He said it would continue for months before his newly adopted daughter stopped having the nightmares about her former life, before she stopped waking up in the middle of the night inconsolable positive that she was still an orphan, still needing reassured that her life was, in fact, now her new reality. The process was long and painful, but for Shohanna and for her new parents, it came to fruition. But it was laced with truth, laced with hope, laced with an overwhelming reality that would eventually win out. Paul references a similar situation here in our passage in Romans 7 today. Who am I? Who was I? Am I who I am now? Or am I who I was then? Or am I both? Let's see. For our passage. Romans 7, 14 through 25. If you would stand as we read the Word of God together out of respect for the God who inspired and wrote this word for us. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let me pray. 
God, would you speak to us of who we were, of who we are, and would you speak to, speak to us of who Jesus is? And would you teach us what it means to walk this broken world with you? Holy Spirit, please help us. Help us to learn, help us to grow by your power, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> I wish, I wish, I wish we could take a weekend, and I mean that, a Friday night, a Saturday, a Sunday, and get into this passage a whole weekend. I think it would be fantastic. But for now, we walk this broken world, which is one hour on Sunday. Let me tell you where we've been, for those of you who haven't been around, for those of you who have been around. We are in point three. We're going through the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in Rome. And through this book we have seen, to this point, sin, the need for being right with God. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody is born with sin given to them. At conception, David said back in the Psalms, In sin my mother conceived me. We were imputed, given the unrighteousness of Adam from the first sin that he committed there in the garden. So everybody, every mortal human being, not named Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, has sin. And we have a need for being made right with God. Point two was justification by faith, which is the means for being right with God. There's only one way to be made right with God, and that is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that brought us to point three, which is where we're at now. Blessings, the results of being right with God, and those blessings are many. Through this process, we have been to and stopped in Asian Station many times. Expiation is the process of God taking our sins away from us. Propitiation, and Steve was talking about this last week to me, and he made a good point. We have said that propitiation was the act of God pouring His wrath out on Jesus instead of us in our place to punish our sins. But that's not just a verb. Propitiation is not just a verb. It's not just something that happened. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. So He propitiated God which means God had anger, wrath towards sin. Jesus absorbed that wrath. And as such, Jesus became our propitiation. So that's a whole lot to think about, but that's propitiation. Imputation is the act of God giving us what was Christ's, His very own righteousness. We talked about it before we sang. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in Him we might become the very righteousness of God. So we were imputed, we were given the righteousness of Christ. So He took our sins away, He punished our sins in Christ, and He gave us the righteousness of Christ. And therefore we are justified who have placed our faith in Christ, which means I have the right to stand in God's presence. I can stand in the presence of God and Him say, you belong here. After we are pronounced right with God, after we are justified, we begin the process of sanctification. Hear me say it again. Sanctification is not the process of earning your salvation. Sanctification is the process of starting to become more and more like Jesus after we are declared righteous. Justification is a judicial declaration, not guilty. Sanctification is the process that shows that we're starting to believe that, we're starting to understand that, and our hands and feet are getting lined up with our judicial declaration. Salvation. Before the foundation of the world we were saved. At one point in time we were saved. We are being saved. And one day, and up ahead eternity, we'll weep no more, we'll sing for joy. That's final salvation. So, we're going to continue to drill that in your head. That's what the book of Romans has talked about to this point. And it all revolves around our union with Christ. Believers are one with Christ. We are in Christ. That is the New Testament's favorite way of explaining our standing. We are in Christ. As such, we are joined with Him. We are in union with Him. We have been crucified with Him. His death was our death. 
we will be raised with Him on the final day when we're made perfect. And boy, that's got huge implications for today. We have been raised with Him spiritually. We will be raised with Him physically so that we might walk in newness of life now. And that's really big for today too. If there's not newness of life in your walk, you have to question, am I really saved? Do I really know what happened on the cross? Now, to set us up for today, at the end of Romans 7, we've got to look back at Romans 4, 5, 6, into 7, and up ahead to 8. Romans 4, we saw that we were justified by faith. That was the, basically the theme of uh, chapter 4, justification. Because of faith in Christ, we have justification. Out of that justification came Romans 5 where we saw that we have peace with God. What a huge statement that is, by the way. That's Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The God who was rightfully wrathful against us, angry with us because we were rebels, we were sinners. Now we have peace with God. Romans 6 showed us that we have freedom from and that we are dead to sin. Romans 7 in the first part showed us that we are dead to the law. And Romans 8, again, wow, just wow, just wait until we get to Romans 8 to see what we got there. Romans 8 is about life in the Spirit and what it means to walk in that newness of life, what it looks like, and the power that we have available to us. So this is what we've seen in Romans 4, 5, 6, and 7, what we will see in Romans 8. But... A long walk to the podium. After seeing all that, we come to Romans 7, 14 through 25, and my problem with this passage is all that good news we just looked at. Justification, peace with God, freedom from sin, dead to sin, dead to the law. We're, look, we're about to look into Romans 8 in a week or two, and we're going to talk about the power of the Spirit. The, the, the ability of the Spirit to help us to do what we can. So it's like victory and peace and joy and death to sin and freedom from sin. And then we have Romans 7, 14 through 25, which seems to depict just total defeat. So what's up with that? What's up with this little hiccup here? Victory, freedom, peace, joy. Yah, 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 failure. Joy, joy, freedom, freedom. Why? My question is why? In the middle of all this victory and triumph, we have verses 14 through 25, which seems to depict failure, loss, and hopelessness. So what does it mean? First, remember, if you were here last week and if you heard the message last week, there's two, at least two camps around this passage. One is that Paul is speaking of his pre-conversion experience about him being hopelessly a sinner sold under sin, but then God saved him. There's the other camp that says this is Paul talking about who he is in the moment as he writes this epistle as a mature apostle of Jesus Christ who struggles with sin. And what we came down on last week was we are approaching this passage that Paul is a believer, that Paul is an apostle, that Paul is writing from his present experience when we look at this passage. So that brings us to this monstrosity of a passage, and it is a monster. And what we're going to do today is start digging with a spoon into it. We don't got a big old shovel today, we got a little old spoon, and we're just going to dig a little bit out. Because there's just so much here. Uh, we won't make it through the whole thing today. I'll spare you that three hour message. It looks like we'll probably make, well, we will, we'll make it through verse 20 today. And hopefully, through this process, we'll answer some questions. And hopefully we'll raise some other questions that we'll answer next week and maybe the following week after that. So, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, as is Paul's pattern so many times, all these passages, so many of these passages, open with what word? Four. How many times have I stood here and said that? Our passage today starts with the word for, which means he's referring back to his statement in the previous passage, which was, I don't know if I put that up here. I quiz myself. I didn't. Okay. Oh, I just gave you a preview. Okay. 
So he's referring back to 7.13 which says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? Referring to the law. And he says, By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So as we look at verse 14, he's referring back to verse 13 in prior, which is saying, is the law sin? Is the law bad? And he says, by no means. It was sin, so that sin would be shown to be sin. So in referring to the law, Paul says it wasn't the law, which he said to be good previously, that brought death to him, but rather it was sin so that sin might be seen as sinful beyond measure. So, now he takes back up to clarify that the law is a good thing, even though it is insufficient to save or to sanctify us. And to do so, he says that the law is what? Spiritual. Now, that statement is going to be a bigger deal later as we work through this passage than it might appear to be here. In saying that the law is spiritual, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is saying that there is a supernatural aspect of the law that really transcends human reason, human thought, and human ability. Tuck that away, because it will be handy to remember later. And then in contrast to the spiritual nature of the law, Paul says, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Paul's making it clear here that he, in his humanity, is at least subject to the limitations of his physical body. Now let me say directly, up front, that there is no intention from the Holy Spirit, from Paul, or from me of implying that the human body is all bad. That the human body is completely unredeemable or that the human body is too evil to be of any good. That is not being said here by anybody involved. We touched on this a couple of, uh, two or three, maybe more than that, weeks ago. When we pointed out that in Romans 12, and what we will point out later in Romans 12, that we are actually to present our physical bodies as a spiritual service of worship. That's Romans 12. So please remember when we speak of the flesh, we're not making a blanket statement about the evil of our physical nature. That is, that's foundational to everything that we're going to talk about. What we are referring to then is the flesh as an entity. The Bible, especially the New Testament, is replete with passages that decry the flesh. It pits the flesh against the spirit. Let me give you a, a real good straightforward example of that in Galatians 5, 13 through 24. Let me read this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like what Paul just said in Romans 7? But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Now listen, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now that is a huge passage in light of what we're talking about today. Huge. 
Here in Galatians, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to contrast the spirit with the flesh. And the Greek word for flesh, both here in Galatians and in our passage in Romans, does not mean body. The Greek word for body is soma, S-O-M-A. But the Greek word for flesh is sarx. And it would be very helpful to define that word. And let me define the word flesh for you. It's translated as flesh, carnal, carnally minded, and fleshly. 147 times in the New Testament. So that's a lot. 27 books in the New Testament. This word's used 147 times in those 27 books. So there's a lot of talk about the flesh in the New Testament. Now listen, used of natural or physical origin, generation or relationship, born of natural generation, the sensuous, sensuous, the sensuous nature of man, the animal nature without any suggestion of depravity, the animal nature with cravings which incite to sin, the physical nature of man as subject to suffering, the flesh, and it denotes mere human nature, the earthly nature of man apart from divine influence and therefore prone to sin and opposed to God. That's what your flesh is. Now that's not very pretty, is it? That's a pretty strong definition to explain what the flesh is. So when Paul is telling the Galatians and the Romans to not gratify the desires of the flesh, he is saying, don't live in such a way that you just do what your sensuous impulses, that you just do what your animal nature asks you to do. There's a song that came out several years ago. And I cringed to even say it from up here. But this is what, and I don't know if the words are exactly right. You and me... We ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do it on Discovery Channel. Yeah. A genius, right? Brilliant writing. But what he's saying in that song is, man, we ain't nothing but flesh anyway. We ain't nothing but a bunch of animals, so let's act like it. And if you don't think that that's the culture that you're a part of today, you are blind. I can't help it. I'm just doing what I want to do. I'm just doing what feels good. I'm just doing what makes sense to me. And Paul is saying to the Galatians and to the Romans, don't be that person. Don't be the person who just satisfies your animal nature. Don't live in such a way that you just do what your flesh asks you to do. And then he tells the Galatians, I didn't do it again, I'm sorry. 5.17, he says that the flesh, this animal-like impulse generator, is against the spirit. And that the two natures are opposed to each other. And that conflict keeps you from doing what you want to do. And that is definitively like what we see in Romans 7. In this man who will end up saying that he does not do what he wants to do. And what's funny is there's a lot of debate about Romans 7, 14 through 25 about whether it's about a believer or a non-believer. And I don't think there's any debate about the Galatians passage about whether he's talking to believers or non-believers. Why? Because he says, Brothers, don't do this. Don't gratify the flesh. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So it's controversial in Romans 7, but not controversial in Galatians 5. Whatever that means. So go back to Romans 7, 14. We see that Paul says he is of the flesh, sold under sin. In saying this, he is saying that in his flesh, as long as he is alive in a physical body that does have senses and desires, he will be under the influence of sinful passions. 
And I don't think for a minute that he is saying he doesn't have a choice and that he's a slave who just can't help himself. Quite the opposite. I think the rest of the passage and into chapter 8 of Romans will give us great hope of living in the midst of and in mastery over our sinful passions. Now that was a lot of information. Now let's move on to 15 through 17. We're going to take it together. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now let's take this as a chunk and get the big idea being conveyed by it. Look at Paul here as a born-again believer, as a mature believer, as an apostle, wrestling with the sin that he commits. Verse 15 has him saying he doesn't understand his own actions. Why doesn't he understand his own actions? Because he doesn't do what he wants to do. But he actually does the very thing that he hates. Now can I get a witness here? Yeah. An understanding agreement that, yeah, I feel the same way, Paul. It's not necessary, but just remove from the equation that this is Paul saying this. What about you? Can you attest to this? Do you understand your own actions? Do you ever do the very thing that you hate? I do. And that doesn't make it all right. But Paul is saying that he did the same thing, and he's saying, that doesn't make it all right. I just don't understand. Then verse 16 goes on to say that if he does what he doesn't want, he agrees with the law, the spiritual law of God, that it, the law, is good. And its demands are desirable. So again, he pits himself in his flesh with its limitations to the, against the spiritual good law of God. And then concludes this short section by saying in verse 17 that when these things happen, now listen, this is monstrous. When these things happen, it is no longer I who do them. But sin that dwells in him. Now that's a big I there. Paul is clearly identifying himself as one who longs to do the will of God, who loves the law of God, who wants what God wants in his life and conduct. And listen to me, after our rebirth, that is the true I in all of us. And in opposition to this I is the sin that dwells in our flesh which is our animal nature with its senses and desires. I need you to listen to this and I need you to understand this. When you were born again, there's a new you. We looked at it in 2 Corinthians 5.17 before we sang. Sorry. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So you're saying, but wait a minute, you're saying the flesh has passed away. Well, we saw earlier in Galatians, he said, those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its desires. So is it gone or is it not? The old has passed away. The flesh is dead. Or is it? What I want you to see here, and we'll, we'll get back to this, and I'm not going to leave you hanging with that there. Once in Christ, this new creation is the new I. And that I is truly new. The old I, who was dead in his trespasses and sins, is gone. It's passed away. The new has come, and the new is born again to a living hope, literally, in Christ. We talked about that earlier. But... That new I, that new man, that little Christ is contained in a fleshly body that is alive. Hopefully, hopefully when you were born again, your body didn't just fall over. How many times have you heard people say, I wish Jesus would have just took me to heaven when I got saved. That way I wouldn't have to wrestle with all this stuff. You're in a physical body. And God has designed this thing in such a way that your spirit, the, the true you inhabits a physical body. 
and He did not completely change and sanctify the physical body. Now again, that's, that's getting into the end of this passage and into Romans 8. Why? Sorry, I'm not going to answer that this morning. Okay, we'll get there. But what I want you to see from this and from what we just saw in 15 through 17 is that there is a new I. There is a new creation that was not there before. And that new I is the true I. Somebody needs to write that song. The new I is the true I. Can I get a witness I? That didn't rhyme. I'll have to work on that one. The old eye who was dead in his trespasses and sin is gone. He's passed away. The new has come and the new was born again to a living hope literally in Christ. But that new eye, that new man, that little Christ is contained in a fleshly body that is still affected by sin. The flesh is still fallen and will not be fully redeemed until it is brought into subjection when it, the flesh, the body, is glorified in the very presence of Jesus Himself. What did Paul say? We won't all die, but we will all be changed. In, the mo in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, this corruptible nature will put on incorruptible nature. So Paul's saying there as well that there's a corruptible nature. And until we see Jesus face to face, either through death in the new resurrection, or if you believe in a rapture, we're not going to get eschatology this morning, when we meet Jesus in the clouds. Sorry. Throw those questions out for right now. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring in the rapture there. That, this is the already but not yet tension that all believers live in. I am redeemed, but I'm not fully redeemed. Even though I'm completely redeemed, I'm not completely redeemed. That's frustrating, isn't it? It feels frustrating. R.C. Sproul referred to it as the general desire to do good, but the immediate desire to enjoy sin. Let me repeat that. The general desire to do good, but the immediate desire to enjoy sin. And that's a real struggle for all of us. One of the hallmarks of maturity, Christian or otherwise, is the ability to delay gratification. So many times we want to do what we know is ultimately right, but unfortunately we know is wrong what we know is wrong is right in front of us and much more easily accessible. I've made the analogy before. I want to be in shape and all that stuff, but then there's donuts. And donuts are right in front of me. Being in shape is way down the road somewhere. So what do I choose? Donuts. And they are building a Krispy Kreme in Beckley. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? <laughs> Not Krispy Kreme. God have mercy on us all. Yeah, weekly elder and deacons meeting at the Krispy Kreme so that we can all see Jesus sooner because we will die. And Lord, hasten the day when the faith be made say, right? <sighs> Usually what is wrong is right in front of us and what is wrong is easily accessible, but will we delay the gratification that shows maturity? If we can say no in the now, we know that better things await. But saying no to what is tangible, what is palpable, what is sensible is not always the easiest thing to do. Now is it? That's because we live in a fleshly body. You're on the computer and you want to click but you don't want to click. You know you shouldn't click but man you really want to click. So easy. Click. Because of this sinful flesh. That, that flesh is prone to physical desires. But the new eye knows that there's something better. A better way if we can just deny ourselves the fleshly indulgences. So I want what is right and good and godly, but sin in my flesh deceives me and tells me I would rather have what it wants. So it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And man, that makes real good practical sense. 
And that's something I love about the Bible. It neither hides nor denies the truth of our fleshly limitations. So let me wrap up today looking at verses 18 through 20 of Romans 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Man, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like the same thing. So similar to verses 15 through 17, but there are subtle, important differences. First, the very beginning of verse 18. And something smells really good, speaking of sensual pleasures. Whew. The very beginning of verse 18 states a mammoth truth. Now listen, church. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. Whoa. That's pretty important. And it is very large in its scope. We need to see how big a statement that really is. Again, here is Paul, the born-again believer, with the new eye being the true him, and he says that nothing good dwells in him. That is, in his flesh. Now, remembering what we said the flesh was, the part of us that is prone to the senses and animal-like instincts, we see that this flesh is where there is nothing good. And again, remember, he's not talking about his physical body in and of itself. The flesh is real and surely is seen in our physical body, but our bodies are to be presented to God as our spiritual service of worship. So the flesh, though surely resident in the body, is not just our bodies. Commentator Stephen Runge puts it like this. Let me read this quote from him. When Paul says there's no good in him, he's referring to his flesh, that mortal part of him that will die. He's not making a global statement about himself, but about what he conceives of as his flesh. The implication is that if there is good in him, it, res it resides somewhere other than his flesh. And he says, in this section, Paul describes the two parts of us that are locked in a spiritual battle, the inner person and the outer flesh. And they are not physically distinct or separable. And Romans 8.10 gives this clearest description of who the flesh and the outer person is. Come on, one more. Sorry. Romans 8.10 says, Our body is dead because of sin. And in our passage from today, Romans 7.18, it says that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And then he says this, The flesh, the outer person, is dead because of sin, but the Spirit has made our inner person alive and it dwells there. Although this concept may sound strange, Rungi says, to us it was common knowledge in the first century. Even today we use the same distinction between body and soul. We've got an outer person and an inner person. That's pretty common. Now, that quote's over. Now note that in the verse mentioned, Romans 8.10, it says that the body is dead because of sin. Now that word for body is soma, and it means your physical body. It's not the same word as flesh, which we saw as sarks. So in Romans 8.10, it says your body is dead because of sin. In our passage from today, Romans 7.18, it says, Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Body and flesh. I want to belabor this point to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that our bodies are bad and we should just not worry about doing godly things with our bodies. That's called dualistic thinking, that we're two separate people. It's very Gnostic. goes way back to the first century. And that type of thinking does one of two things. It either leads us to depression because we think we can't do anything good or it leads us to legalism and pride and lawlessness thinking that it doesn't matter what our bodies do since they are in this line of thinking beyond saving. So we can either despair, oh poor us, we can't do anything right, or we go to the other side and we say it don't matter what we do with our bodies. Both of those lines of thinking are wrong and it's not biblical. That's dualistic, that's Gnostic. 
Your body is not beyond saving. Both thought patterns are wrong and destructive. Let me leave that right there until we get done with our passage. And we'll be back to that in the end. Verse 19. I'm going to try to finish quickly. There's Romans 8.10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Sorry that I missed that. It's Romans 7.18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Here again, Paul echoes the thought from before, saying that he does not do the good that the new eye wants to do, but rather he is doing evil things that the new eye does not want to do. And why? Verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, within me. If I am doing what the new, real eye does not want to do, it affirms that there's something else another power compelling me to do this because I don't want to do it. I, I, I really don't want to do this. So why am I doing it? And the answer is sin. It is no longer I who do it, but sin is doing it. Sin that dwells in me. Grab a hold of that truth inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. It is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. Sin does it. Back in Romans 7, 11, this is not up there and it's something you're going to have to reach back for. We saw sin as a real active force and in 7, 11, sin took the law and used the good law of God to deceive us and to kill us. In the same way here, sin does what we don't want to do. Sin is real. Sin is present in us as believers and sin does in and through us what the real us doesn't want to do. And I believe this is so important. In this passage of 7, 14 through 25, I believe it's so important in our everyday lives and I believe it's so important for understanding the entire New Testament. And it's the main reason I believe that Paul is writing this from a believer's point of view. This is not pre-conversion experience. This is the daily Christian battle, the daily Christian life. And that would include the amazing news coming in Romans 8, which will be a couple weeks away. And there is more to the Bible which tells us how to overcome this sin that dwells in our flesh. So don't give up hope from today's partial treatment of Romans 7, 14 through 25, which we just made it through 20. There is an amazing truth. There is amazing news coming to our rescue. But for today, let's stop and look at application points. And I know you're going, man, this is not good news at all. Three application points. And we'll end with a really good application point that is good news, by the way. First application point. Sin is real. And sin resides in your flesh. You're like, what's the application here? <laughs> I would say that if there is one thing that is plain and pronounced in what we've looked at today, it is this truth. It is not biblical to say that the Christian does not have to struggle with sin. Here, in very simple terms, Paul says that he, and by way of transference, we have sin residing in our flesh. It makes me think of the first step that has to be taken to overcome any problem. And what is that? You have to understand that you have a problem. How many people are alcoholics who say, I can quit anytime I want to? Or drug addicts. No, I mean, I could quit if I wanted to. And what they're saying is, I don't have a problem. The first step to solving any problem is, admit that you have a problem. Listen, Christian, you want to deal with sin? Admit that you have sin. And here's where the little letter S Let's see, if I do it this way, it's to me. So if I do it this way, it's to you. That little letter S. All of your sins, believer, have been dealt with on the cross. All of your sins have been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. What God did not do through the blood of Jesus is take away your sin. Sin still resides in your flesh. 
also admit that. Confess it. I still have sin living in my members. Because that's exactly what Paul does in this passage. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh. The only thing that dwells in his flesh is sin. The apostle, writing the Bible, says, I've got sin in my flesh. So admit you have a problem. Admit that you have sin. It is biblical realism to understand that I have been forgiven for all my sins, that I am dead to sin, and that in the midst of those tremendous truths to understand that sin still resides in my flesh and will until either I die or am brought face to face with Jesus. One commentator said it succinctly this way, to be saved from sin a man must at the same time own it and disown it. So that's application point one. Understand and own the fact that sin lives in your flesh. The second point addresses disowning your sin. Point two. The battle between the spirit and the flesh is the good work of sanctification. You have flesh. And since you have flesh, you have sin. What you have to do is fight the good fight of faith where you walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. You know what C.S. Lewis called his flesh? Anybody? This is fantastic. C.S. Lewis called his flesh brother ass, as in donkey. You ever feel that way? You ever dealt with a donkey? Stubborn, resistant, can do some fantastic work for you. But doggone it, if they sit down, you're in trouble. What did we talk about Wednesday? I told you he don't look so good, right? The Cajun was talking about his donkey that couldn't see. He said he don't look so good. The guy bought him. He got him home and realized the donkey's blind. He said, you misrepresented this donkey. And he said, no, I didn't. I told you he don't look so good. <clears throat> brother ass. My flesh is brother ass. and we, uh, Wouldn't that just be wonderful if we just all started calling our flesh brother ass? Our flesh is real, but we must disown the sin that resides there and present our bodies to God as our spiritual service of worship. We must bring brother ass into subjection. Our body is what we must present to God. So we can't just write it off and shoot the donkey. We need it. And here's the other side of that coin. The law can't sanctify us. So any efforts to make the flesh obey the law is going to fail. You need the help of the capital S Spirit. Point one was own your sin. Point two was disown your sin. How do we do that? Third application point. Know the new I is powered by the very Spirit of God Himself. Yes, the truth is that your flesh and the sin that resides in that flesh is an ever-present reality. But just like Stephen Curtis Chapman's daughter, whose new reality overcame and overwhelmed her former reality, listen, believer, Christian, you have a new nature. What you could not do in and of yourself, in your flesh, in your efforts, by trying to keep the law, what you could not do in and of yourself, your new nature, powered by the Holy Spirit, can do. Your real I is adopted by God with all of your sins forgiven so that you can look at your sin in your flesh and know that you now have an option. You now have a choice to not choose that sin and its deceitful impulses. Know the new I as described in the truth of the Bible and know that we are designed to overcome the sin in our flesh and glorify God with our bodies. As the bad memories and sinful impulses tug at us and try to deceive us into believing that they are our ultimate reality, we can look at our Father full in the face 
and hear Him tell us, it's okay, you're mine now, you're safe, you're at home, your present and your future are certain with me. I am for you. And I love that picture of this little girl who knew nothing but loneliness and helplessness and hopelessness, waking up in the middle of the night, crying out in terror, feeling all alone, but her reality was no. She wasn't helpless. She wasn't hopeless. She had a new home. She had a hope now. And she had to be reminded of that over and over and over. And her daddy would rush into her room, scoop her up and explain to her again, no honey, that's not your reality anymore. We adopted you. We love you. You are with us. We are for you. And again, when I wake up in the nightmare of my sin and I'm wanting to kick myself and I'm crying out, oh, wretched man that I am, God scoops me up and He says again, no, you are mine. I adopted you. I brought you into my family and I have given you a new eye. I have given you a new hope. I have given you my very spirit and that spirit is your ultimate reality. That new eye is your ultimate reality. Yes, sin is real. Yes, it is there. But I have given you something greater, something better that will overcome even that sin that resides in your flesh. What's this look like? Let me give you a sneak peek. And it's a pretty good, fun sneak peek. Pretty exciting. If I can ever... See, it's building tension is what it's doing. Wait for it. Oh, my gosh. Just an arrow over would be fantastic. I think my... I'll read it. It's frustrating. Romans 8, 10 and 11. Sneak peek. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Listen, listen. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Though the body is dead because of sin, though sin dwells in my flesh, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His capital S Spirit who dwells in you. Last application point is know the new I is powered by the very Spirit of God Himself. Own your sin, disown your sin, and know the new eye is powered by the Holy Spirit of God. Let's pray. God, again, I am fully cognizant of the fact that we have probably raised more questions today than we've answered.